Uh, we're going we're gonna to open our Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 1. We're going to read from there, uh, continuing probably what's, what's going to be number two of maybe four messages out of this passage. There's just a lot going on here and um, uh, many things to be said. And uh, when, I, when I saw the verse that we're going to focus on this morning, I thought, that's going to take an entire message just to unpack. So um, we're going to read Matthew 1, starting in verse 18. The scripture says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Let's pray as we consider God's word. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning and to consider your word. We thank you for uh, the principle which we sang about throughout all the songs, the common thread of your grace and salvation. And we thank you that we can come to your word and we can hear something which, which feeds our souls. We might think that what we really need today is for the ravens to win. Or what we really need for today is is for some piece of particularly good news. Or what we really need today is is a good cup of coffee or something. And those may all be good things, but what we really need today, what we really need every day, what we need every hour and every minute, is an awareness of your kindness and your grace and of our need to depend on that, and to believe in it, and to trust in it. And so I pray, Father, as we, as we focus on unpacking a, a subject, as we focus on a, on a single sentence, I pray that, that the impression would be left, just as the impression was left in that song we just sang, Lord. Many of us could probably sing most of it again, if not all of it, just because of the the way it came around and around and just impressed that truth that we're to wait for you and let our hearts take courage and and for our soul to trust in you. We pray that that, that we would be impressed with this truth and that our lives would be changed by it. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, Have you thought much about titles? Not not sermon titles. Um, Hey, Sam, can you, are you still back there? No. All right. 
he has gone off. I was going to say, put that sermon title slide back up. Um, just for a second. Jerry's getting it, Jack. Thanks. Um, just so that uh, everyone can see, Monique Snyder designed this awesome slide for me because I asked her uh, to. And so I just I want to make sure that you see it. Um, there you go. Is it up? No? Um, it'll show up. She, there's that. That's the series that we're in. And then next slide. Look at that. Isn't that nice? I love that. Um, yeah. So anyway, um, so no, not, not sermon titles, uh, but, but have you thought much about titles, about, about the, the titles that people have? Some people have titles. You can make that go away now. Black. Thank you. Um, uh, titles that people have after their names, like Esquire, right? Means, that means that they, are, that, they, that they are out there and they can help you in matters of the law. Or if they have a title in front of their name, doctor, that means that they've studied a lot and the name... MD after it means they can help you uh, in some medical area. DDS means they can operate on your teeth, right? Um, you know, PhD means, no, 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 don't let them touch your body. You know, like they work on in, in, in other areas of knowledge. Um, they, titles convey the meaning and importance of a person. So I was thinking about this and I thought about Queen Elizabeth, right? Probably the best known reigning monarch in the world today. This is her title, Queen Elizabeth II, by the grace of God, queen of this realm and of her other realms and territories, head of the commonwealth, defender of the faith. That's not going to fit on a business card, right? But you don't need a business card when you've got a title like that because people just get out of your way because you've got all these other people with you. They, they reroute traffic for you with a title like that. She's had numerous titles throughout her life which I knew nothing of until I looked them up on Wikipedia. But here they are, Her Royal Highness, Prince Elizabeth of York. This is who she was when she was born. This is what everybody called her, hmm? Princess. Um, her Royal Highness, Princess Elizabeth uh, of, of York. Then she became Her Royal Highness, the Princess Elizabeth, when her father became king. Then she was Her Royal Highness, the Princess Elizabeth, Duchess of Edinburgh. And now, if you talk to her, you don't say, um, excuse me, you don't say, miss, you don't say any of that. You say, when you address her, your majesty, or you, call, you say, your majesty, the queen, because that is her title. Now, she has, on Wikipedia, 21 pages of titles. 21 pages of titles. This is impressive to me. When you think about just the sheer magnitude of royal titles, military ranks, honors from different uh, nations in the Commonwealth of Nations, the foreign honors that have been given to her and her honorary military positions. But now listen to this story. This is, this is interesting. Upon her accession to the throne, she was asked by her private secretary what her regnal name would be. That's the name by which she would reign. Because often, uh, a monarch, when they come to the throne, they will take a name, um, like when her, her father, Albert, became king. You know, King Albert? No, he became King George VI when he took the throne. So she was asked, what will your regnal name be? To which she responded, my own, of course. What else? That was, that was her, she's Queen Elizabeth. Why would I change my name? Have you thought much about the names and titles of Jesus Christ? 
These throw light on either the person of Christ or on some aspect of his ministry. Think about titles relating to Christ's identity. He's called the exact image of God, the first and last, the alpha and the omega. He's called the word of God, the last Adam, the bright morning star, the rising sun, the living one, the amen, the true light, the righteous one, the lion of Judah. He is called the king of the Jews, and he gives himself titles in the I am sayings of John's gospel. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. He's called the gate, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, and the life. And he says, I am the true vine. Then there are titles that that reflect Christ's ministry. He is called the seed of Abraham, the root and offspring of David, the faithful witness. We saw today in this passage, he is called Emmanuel, the capstone, the rock, the bridegroom, the firstborn among many brothers, the first fruits, firstborn from the dead and the heir of all things. And then there are titles that reflect or connect to his authority. He is called Lord. Or the head of the church, the chief shepherd, Acts 5.31, he's called the prince. And then in John, he is called rabbi by some. There are some titles that emphasize Jesus Christ's saving work. He is called the man of sorrows, the Passover lamb, a horn of salvation, the consolation of Israel, the deliverer and redeemer. He is called the author and perfecter of salvation. And then there are titles which stress his mediatory status, the idea that he stands and, as the song says, interposes his saving blood between us and the wrath of God. Not just the wrath of the Father, but his own wrath which would come against all who refuse to acknowledge who he is and what he has done for him. He's called the mediator, the high priest. Or the title, I think, that, that we might identify with as, as people needing someone to help them, he is called the Son of Man. The title that perhaps expresses that of all of us, this is the one that we would present to God and offer to him. Forty-five titles in all that I was able to come up with. But there is one name, perhaps, that outshines, I believe, and outexplains and defines and honors the Lord more than any other name. Brilliant, beautiful, amazing, and at the same time, simple. So, so there's this moment that happens to husbands, and if husbands are wise, they, they listen and perk up and pay attention at this point. You know, wives, you might want to like just be like, Bum, you know, and nudge your husband there, or not. Um, there's this moment that happens to husbands when their wife knows it, and the husband realizes maybe he's making things a little too complicated, right? Uh, my wife sends me this, um, this picture of, of handwriting uh, of the text of Philippians chapter 2, which is something that I, I really try to do when I preach on a passage or something about lifting up every word and, and moving it over on, onto a page and writing it down that, that really helps you unravel and, and think through what am I assuming is written there? What, what you know, what is... Um, what, 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 have I, what am I not really grasping? And so she had written out Philippians chapter 2, and she ran across a passage that had popped into my mind, prepping for this message, and it's Philippians chapter 2, where it says, Therefore God has exiley, exalt, highly, exiley, which maybe I guess is Keith Meyer for highly exalted. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. To which I'm like, that's the name. 
That's the super, what is that name? What is it? It's like, he's got, you didn't know, Jesus has a name written on his thigh. Did you? Like, a, he's, got, he's got this name. It's this king of kings, lord of lords. You know, like, nobody on earth ever knew that while he was living. I don't think he, I think it's a symbol of some sort when he returns. So I'm like, maybe it's like that. Maybe it's some hidden name, like the one that he's going to give us when we, when we overcome, like in Revelation, a secret name that no one else knows. To which my wife says, No. Because I messaged her when she sent me the text. I was like, what is the name that's above every name? She's like, is this a softball you're throwing at me? Like, it was such an easy answer for her. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. I'm like, why have I never seen that? In the Bible like that, isn't God wonderful? Truth, new truth all the time. New truth, that's old truth that you should have known. But you're just like, ah, the pieces fit together. Our text is this. This is, this is the text. So, so uh, one explanation, four points, three applications, close. But here's our text. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. The name of Jesus is a name which highly exalts the Son of God. The name of Jesus is a name that communicates meaning. This name teaches, it says something every single time it is said. And that's the way Jewish names function. When Elijah shows down on Mount Carmel with the prophets uh, and with the, with the priests, uh, of, of Baal and the priestesses of Asherah when they have their conflict. Am I not on? Click. Am I going to get really loud? Fix me. I don't like me anymore. I don't like the way I sound. Um, when, when they have their showdown on Mount Carmel, um, Elijah says, choose today. If, if the Lord is God, worship him. But if it's Baal, worship him. And then he says, the God who answers by fire, he is the one. And so God answers by fire, doesn't he? And Elijah says, get the priests and priestesses and kill them all in, you know, kill them. And they rush them down to the river and they kill them. But you know what the people chow out, chat out or shout out? They say, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. You know what that is in Hebrew? Elijah, Elijah, Elijah. That's what they're saying. They're just saying his name, but they're actually saying theology. Names had meaning. Jesus, the name Jesus means God is salvation. Yahweh is salvation. And this is something that, that is said over and over in the Old Testament. I don't want to uh, spend too much time on this because there's a lot of other things there, but, but just that we know the name and then we hear, I'm going to give you a, a, a test, okay? Um, the, the, the name Jesus means Yahweh is salvation. God saves. Listen to what God says in the book of Isaiah. Several times, I'm just going to read two verses. He says this, Isaiah 43:11. I, I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. What then are we to make of the, the verse in Luke, chapter 2, verse 11? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. There's no Savior beside God. There's no savior other than God. Isaiah 60, 16, you shall know that I, the Lord, am your savior and your redeemer. 
a scholar by the name of, uh, I can't remember his name, I'll, I'll, I'll remind you later, it's on the next page. He says this about this passage. He says, this verse, Matthew 121, establishes the mission of Jesus, which in turn sets the stage for the rest of Matthew's narrative and thus determines how his narrative is to be read. This is the hinge, informative Peace. This is the center or focus of the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. And this verse is going to affect everything that follows after. Now, let me give you your test, okay? What I want you to do is to read Matthew, and I want you to come to me with any evidence that this is not true, okay? No one calls Jesus, Jesus, in Matthew's Gospel, except this angel right here and Matthew the narrator. He holds the name close through the whole gospel. He, he keeps it to himself. And you know what he's telling us? When the angel names Jesus, and when Matthew informs us in this passage in, in verse 25 that Joseph named him Jesus, he's saying, you know his identity. And no one else knows his identity. And they're going to struggle to determine and figure out who he is through the rest of the gospel. In light of this significance, this is what the scholar says, I'll say his name in a couple of minutes. Uh, in light of the significance of Jesus' name and its connection to his mission, whenever that name appears in Matthew's narrative, and it appears over 150 times, it would remind the reader of his mission to save his people from their sins. This is what the people in the book are trying to figure out. This is what everyone's trying to assess and, and learn. Listen to what they say after Jesus calms the storm, Matthew 8, 27. The men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? I don't know. If you create and command the wind, who are you? Yahweh is salvation. The name said over and over points us to the reality that God is a savior and it impresses on us the fact that we need a savior. Are you aware of your need for a savior? You might have come to church this morning thinking I need to go to church because I need a blessing. There is no blessing if there is no savior. You don't need a blessing, you need a connection with God. And the connection with God is destroyed, and we'll talk about that in a moment, that, that, that we have become lost. The Hebrew word for law, or the, the Greek word for lost is apalumi, which is used in other places to mean destroyed. We need rescue. We need a savior. Are you aware of that need? If you say that you are a Christian and you are not aware of your need for a savior, you do not understand Christianity. You need someone to save you. So let's look at our text. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Four points. Here's number one. He will. He will. You may think, I know where I've been. I know what's gone on in my soul. I know how my life has run up to this point and people have rejected me and there are, there are things that I've done that have caused divisions between myself and others. I have sinned in ways that no one knows. I have hidden things deep in the past. I have, I have done things 
pre-internet, right, that could not be recorded. Aren't you thankful, you know, older folks, that, that everything that you've done in your, in your wilder or pre-Christian days has not been recorded and uploaded on Facebook for everyone just to scroll back in your timeline and see? Praise God for being born before 2004 when they invented Facebook, right? Um, will Jesus be willing to save you? What about me? Will Jesus save me? We need a savior, will he? Matthew 8, 2, behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And this is like, culturally speaking, what happens next is like level 10 crazy. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. Like everyone in the room or everyone surrounding Jesus probably gasped. Like you don't do that. We don't touch lepers. We, we surge back and run away because this is, this, is, this is a horrible disease. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. He touched him and said, I will be clean. And he was cleansed. Matthew 8, 6. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. That's what the centurion says. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. Jesus' character in his life was to move to the point of need and to help. Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Not I might, not I'll pick and choose to see if you are one of my own and maybe I'll give you something if you've been good. But if you labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Matthew 23, 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. The Lord came to them and said, I will, and they said, no, thank you. In your awareness of your need for a savior, are you coming to the one who is willing to save you? You might think, my good actions will save me. It doesn't work that way. You need a savior. Is Jesus willing? I love the promise of 1 Thessalonians 5, 24. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So, he will. Second, he will save he will save. Jesus saves his people. He is a friend who takes our place. He is our substitution. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Jesus gets in the place of our punishment. Now, I don't know what your house is like, but my house does not work this way. When one of my kids steps out of line and needs to be punished, the other Meyer boys are generally either like leaving the room, you know, intently involved in something else. They're like, don't look at me. I'm just over here holding the remote control watching this TV show. You know, they're not like, I'll take the punishment. No, they're like, nope, you take your punishment. Jesus is willing and able and desires to take our punishment for us because he is a friend who takes our place. He's our substitute. He's also our expiating friend. 
He is our expiating friend. This is, this is what he does for us. We don't necessarily understand this because we don't see the effect. We just, we hear of the good news of the grace of God and maybe we, we're so eager to be delivered for our sins, we just run for grace and we don't think about what it means that our sin needs expiation. Okay, what does that mean? R.C. Sproul says that expiation is the act that results in the change of God's disposition toward us. The act that results in the change of God's disposition towards us. Parents, have you ever had this experience? You're talking to your kid and you're like, you're like um, could you just go over there and, and clean up this mess that you made? And the kid's like, no, I'm not going to do it. And you're like, come on now, just go and clean it up. And they're like, I am absolutely not going to do it. And your anger's getting greater and greater and the penalties maybe are starting to pile up. And you're like, all right, I'm going to have to discipline this kid, right? What would bring expiation around at that moment, right? It would be the kid saying, Okay, I'll do it, right? Just humble yourself and go and go and handle the problem. Right? When it comes to needing God's disposition toward us to be changed, someone must step in our place and say, I will take all of the punishment. I will take the burden of sin upon myself. Your wrath must be satisfied. I will do it. And Jesus stands in our place, and God the Father who is wrathful, and God the Son, who has wrath, but who stands in our place, takes the penalty for our sins, and when the penalty is poured out, God then looks at sinners, and he says, my attitude towards them is different, because the punishment has been taken. So Jesus has done that work for us. That means, because he commits this act of expiation, it means that he is our propitiating friend. Now, you might say, I don't, I don't know that word either, to which I will explain it in just a second. But, but listen to this Bible verse. Okay? You need to know what this word means. 1 John 4.10, right? We're all looking for love. In this is love. Not that we have found the greatest love of all inside of us. That's not what the Bible says. That's Whitney Houston. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. If you don't know what that word means, you're going to be like, well, that leaves me cold. Right? You know? In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is an offering that turns away wrath, something that satisfies Jesus is able to expiate our sins because he can propitiate God. If I were to say, I would die for my church, I would die for you people, you know what God's going to say? We don't take that currency here. Sinners dying for sinners. No, not, not acceptable. Got anybody perfect of infinite value and worth around? Because I'll take that, right? You ever try to pay for something at the store and you pull out a handful of change and you're like, oh yeah, I got it. And then you realize that like what's in that pile is not four quarters, but like three quarters and something from Canada. And they're like, that's Canadian. And you're like, Canada is a country, right? You know, like surely there must be an exchange rate, you know, and they're like, we don't take that here. God wants an acceptable offering. He wants perfection. 
The righteousness of God has been manifested, Romans 3 says, apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the law of the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and they're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, good news, whom God put forward as a propitiation in his blood to be received by faith. God says, I will demonstrate my righteousness to you. I will give you my righteousness. I will put it in your bank account. I will pay your bill for you, and I will pay it with currency that I accept. This, my son, in whom I'm well pleased. His death on my behalf. And so, he is a friend who propitiates God for us. But he's also our perfect friend. You know, you've got some perfect friends in your life probably who are mildly irritating in their perfection. Like, because every time you say something like, man, you know, I got this problem at home, they're like, boom, solution, right? And you're like, come on, stop it. You know, like, I, just, I wanted to share with you maybe a little bit, you know, not like just hear about how your life is all organized and perfect. You know, they're like, they're like I'll come over and fix it for you. And you're like, ah, right? Jesus is not that kind of perfect friend. Jesus is the kind of perfect friend who says this. He says, you know what? I've got perfection, and I please God, and I will give that to you. In the book of Jeremiah, after speaking about the new covenant that that we would become part of, that Jesus would initiate and and inaugurate and open up, Jeremiah, after speaking about giving people new hearts and, and about changing people so that they no longer are dominated by their sins and they no longer desire sin, Jeremiah says this, In those days Judah will be saved, Jerusalem will dwell securely, and this is the name by which it will be called, The Lord is our Righteousness. My voice is going in and out. I'm going to shut that off. The Lord is our righteousness. Isn't that what it means to be saved? Isn't that what it means to be saved? That I can stand before God one day and God will say, are you a righteous person? And I will say, you're my righteousness. And I'll put his arm around me and say, enter in. Isn't that the way salvation works? He will. He will save And he will save his people. Now, I ran across a quote that is just far too good to read. Not to read, sorry. (laughs) Well, good is a quote that you can't read. Um, It's so good, and I thought, I'll just boil it down to its essence. And so it's like 28 sentences, so I apologize. It's just, I can't can't get rid of any of it, okay? Because you may have had that moment in your life where you think, am I one of God's people? Like, I get it that Jesus is good, and I get it that the gospel is to be believed, but what what if not me? You ever feel that way in the middle of the night? This is what Spurgeon says. Now the question arises, who are his people? It arose because we're at point number three, he will save his people. The question arises, who are his people? We are eager to know who they are, and we are glad to find that his people, be they who they may, need to be saved and shall be saved, for it is written, he shall save his people. It is not said, he shall reward his people for their righteousness. Nor is it promised that he shall save them from becoming becoming sinners, but he shall save his people from their sins. Do you need saving, brothers and sisters? Has the Holy Spirit taught you that you need salvation? Let your hearts be encouraged. This is the character of all his people. He never had a chosen one who could do without washing in the Savior's blood.
If you are righteous in yourself, you are not one of his people. If you were never sick in soul, you are none of the folk that the great physician has come to heal. If you were never guilty of sin, you are none of those whom he has come to deliver from sin. Jesus comes on no needless errand and undertakes no unnecessary work. If you feel yourselves to need saving, then cast yourselves on him. For such as you are, he came to save. Notice, yet again, the very gracious but startling fact that our Lord's connection with his people, this is so good. The Lord's connection with his people, lies in the direction of their sins. This is an amazing condescension. He is called Savior in connection with his people, but it is in reference to their sins because it is from their sins that they need to be saved. If they had never sinned, they would never have required a Savior, and there would have been no name of Jesus known on earth. That is a wonderful text. Did you ever meditate upon it? who gave himself for our sins according to the scriptures. One more paragraph. As Martin Luther says, he never gave himself for our righteousness, but he did give himself for our sins. Sin is a horrible evil, a deadly poison, yet it is this which gives Jesus his title when he overcomes it. What a wonder to think upon. The first link between my soul and Christ is not my goodness, but my badness. Not my merit, but my misery. Not my standing, but by my falling. It is not my riches, but my need. He comes to visit his people, yet not to admire their beauties, but to remove their deformities. He comes not to reward their virtues, but to forgive their sins. Oh, too good not to read in full. So when you hear the words of attack from the devil, and if you live between Genesis chapter 3 and Revelation chapter 21 in your personal timeline, and you do, don't don't ask if you're under spiritual attack. You are. It's it's a certainty that, that you are under attack. And when the devil says you are not one of God's people, you can say, quiet. You're reminding me of my sins and telling me I am not one of God's people. That is what he saves me from and why I call him Savior. So go away, back to hell, be quiet. He will save his people. He will save his people from their sins. It is true that he will deliver us from perils that we are unaware of. It is true that God will help us in all of our struggles. It is true that Jesus will comfort us in our sorrows. It is true that he will protect us and defend us from our enemies. And that he will heal us from our hurts. But that is not the primary focus of the ministry of Jesus. Now that's the sermon on Emmanuel, God with us. And you'll hear that. But here, he saves his people from their sins. In Matthew, salvation, the word save, is used in the form of being saved from sickness and disease. And we need that kind of salvation because the world and we ourselves biologically are running down, and that's why we get sick. He saves us from danger, yes. But because we are alienated from nature by the curse of God that's on the world because of sin, 
He saves us eschatologically, that's a word that means in terms of our ultimate destiny, because the wrath of God is coming upon us. And it's not like, get into this closet over here because the Father is coming and he's going to destroy you. It's Jesus will come again and judge. And you need to be made righteous. And so we learn that he will save us from our sins. It's true that we need deliverance from our sin, from our legal guilt collectively, but Jesus comes to deliver us, it says here, from our sins specifically. The need that we have most is forgiveness and deliverance from sin. Imagine how inappropriate people would think it was if somebody were to wheel someone forward in a wheelchair this morning and say, he has a need, and I were to say to him, if you put your faith and trust in Christ, your sins will be forgiven. People would say, so insensitive. And yet, a man comes to Jesus, carried by his friends, a paralytic, and they lower him through the roof, and he looks at the young man, and he says this to him as he's paralyzed on that bed. Be of good cheer, child. Your sins are forgiven. What this paralyzed man needs most is not Deliverance from his paralyzed condition, but deliverance from his sins. Jesus will say in Matthew 26, 28, This is my blood of the covenant that is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, Dr. Mark Randall Jackson, that's the guy's name, says this about sin in Matthew. Matthew's view of sin is rather far-reaching. It flows out of the heart. It affects our motivation, our attitude, our thoughts, and our speech, not to mention our deeds. Thus, sin is not simply a wrong action. It is something that originates in the heart and affects who we are. Sin also has a connection with an evil power outside of us, and that powerful figure is the devil. That's why Jesus taught us to pray not only to be kept from temptation, but also to be delivered from the evil one. Thus, to be saved from our sins requires not only being forgiven of our sins, but also being delivered from the tyranny of our sins. In light of Matthew's description of sin, it would be hard to think that one is saved from sins unless one's life is emancipated from the pervasive influence that sin has had on a person's life. As Jesus goes to the cross, it says, those who pass by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So all the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
The irony of this passage, I believe, is that we know because of Matthew 1.21 what Jesus' identity is. We understand what his mission is. We know what he has come to do because we heard it pronounced before he was born in a dream to Joseph. You will call his name Jesus. God is salvation because he will deliver his people from their sins. And so they say he saved others. He's not saved anyone yet. He cannot save himself. That's true. You just don't know why. They don't call him by his name, Jesus. They call him King of Israel, mocking him. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. There is no need or reason to believe in a savior who would not die on the cross to save his people from their sins. If he refused to be forsaken of God and pay for our sins, we would be utterly, eternally, forever forsaken. And so what good news. Have you ever stopped and considered how bizarre it is that we sing songs about the death of a man? And yet we've sung three weeks in a row that song, uh, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. He gives up the ghost and he says, Into thy hands I commit my spirit. And God is pleased with us. Because Jesus said, Pour out your wrath on me, be displeased with me. And so we see him saving his people from their sins. Three points of application and we'll close. Don't forget to do your test as you read Matthew. Does anybody call him Jesus but Matthew and that angel? I don't think so. I would love to know if I'm wrong. Application number one. Let us make our feast, our daily bread, our regular food, the righteousness of Christ. Let us personally identify with this truth. In the book of Colossians, Paul says this, as he's explaining the riches of the glory of the mystery of the gospel, he says, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. We're going to waltz into heaven one day, right? You know, having just given up the ghost ourselves and we're going to enter into heaven and God is going to look at us and we are either leaving quickly or staying forever. If Christ is in us, we stay. And so ought that not to be our daily food as we consider our own sins and our own righteousness and we we pile up our good deeds and we say, this is good, I'm a good person. Turn and look at Christ. Because you know what? When the devil comes along and he smashes that pile of good deeds and they all vanish and we're like, wait a minute, what happened to all that stuff? He cannot. He cannot take away the righteousness of Christ. So feast on that daily. Second, let us believe that our sins have become like ashes in a campfire. Have you ever seen that? You come, uh, maybe you've been on the wrong side of the campfire in the wind, right? And the wind kicks up after the fire is completely burned down and there's nothing left but just that white ash and it just, just blows away and it's, it's gone. Our sins are like that. When Jesus dies on the cross, the penalty for our sins is paid and the Holy Spirit in us 
is empowering us to break the back of sin in our life. And so let us fight to believe that in every area of our lives until we believe it to be true. He will save his people from their sins. Matthew 1.21 looks toward it. You know the verse teaches us the mission of Jesus. It sets the stage for everything that happens in Matthew, and it tells us how everything is supposed to be read. And so you know his name, you know his identity, and you see his works throughout the gospel. You will hear him preach righteousness. And you know that he took the penalty for your sins, and so believe that they've been forgiven, and fight until you believe it's true. Third, let us throw away the box of snakes. Imagine if, if I were to come home and say, kids, you know, you wanted another pet. I got, I got some pets. These are, um, these are poisonous spitting cobras. Wow, dad, where are we going to keep them? We're just going to dump them all over, right? They're just going to live everywhere in the house. You'd be like, you are an unfit parent. You are a crazy person, right? You know, no, you, you make sure that they don't enter in. You, you lay them aside. You get rid of them. You throw them away. Don't bring them here. Hebrews 12.1 says, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus has done a great work for us, and he reaches out his hand as Savior to save us. So often we say, I need a Savior. But I'm just, even though I'm, even though I'm, I'm, I'm in this shipwreck condition, and I'm, I'm going under, I just, I need to hold on to this 300 pound weight. I need, I need to keep that. I need to, you know, I just can't get by without this. Let it go. Let it go. Why? To earn salvation? No, because of salvation. To honor your Savior. So my encouragement as we close this morning is this. If you have not put your faith and trust in Christ, you need him to be your Savior. You need him to stand in your place. And if you have put your faith and trust in Christ, let me encourage you to remember the righteousness of Christ, to apply that righteousness to the areas in which your conscience may may bring up or which the devil reminds you of, of past sins. And then attack sin where you see it in your life because you have been delivered from it. So let's pray as we close. Father, thank you for the opportunity to share this word. We thank you for the amazing name of Jesus, which teaches us all that we need to know. He will save his people from their sins. We pray that you would help us, Lord, to trust in you as Savior if we've not already done that. If there's someone here who needs to do that, I pray that that you you would believe in the goodness of what God has given you in deliverance from your sins. And I pray that if you are here and you are a believer and you have perhaps forgotten that the path on which you walk as a Christian is Jesus Christ, I want to remind you of that. Encourage you to to, to lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and to pursue Christ. 
and to be thankful and to rejoice and to fight back against temptation in the knowledge of the goodness of what God has given to you. Lord, we pray this, asking that you would remind us by the power of your Holy Spirit, because you're good and because we need to remember. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing this closing song together.